Thank you so much for tonight. We thank you, God, for the riches of your glory, the immeasurability of your grace, the expanse of your love. Yes. But we're here gathered tonight because of your grace. Father, as we share your word together tonight, I Pray that you will deliver us from the expectations of men. Deliver us from the eloquence of man. Deliver us from the opinion and intentions of man. Deliver us from the ego of man. Speak expressly by your spirit to us tonight. As you strengthen us for the work to which you have called us. May we be nourished that your name will perpetually be praised on our lips. This we have asked in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you and please take your seats. Hallelujah. Praise God. So good to always a blessing to share the word of God. And I'm particularly humbled and excited tonight because I'm sharing with people that I love. What are Church for All Nations? And uh, for the short time we have tonight in Bible study, I'd like for you to share um, a burden that I've had recently uh, for my um, stay in Ghana and I believe what has burdened me is a microcosm of what is happening in the church universal and it led me on a journey to find myself again in God um, led me again to go back to the basics and the simplicity of the gospel. Because there's so many complications that man has introduced to Christianity that is very alien to the idea of church. I was speaking with Brother Sam earlier and asking if it was possible to project some pictures. I've been collecting I've opened a folder for my uh, photo album that I called, I call Charismatic Madness. And in there, I'm collecting pictures of um, the madness that's going on around the caricature that we call church, particularly in the charismatic movement. Um, maybe it was a good thing that I made a request to project the pictures so late, so it was not able to come on because you would have been heartbroken uh, by people who have been so hoodwinked, eating grass at the command of their leaders, chewing human hair, the person that calls himself a man of God 
and these are in different locations, not just in Ghana, different locations. Uh, the man has debtor, um, and he's just calling the congregation. He says he's blessed it, and he's turned it into apple juice so you can drink it. <laughs> and they form the queue, and they are drinking. I mean, if you know debtor. LT, you don't know what debtor is. Pinesaw. Okay, yeah. That's, that's the brother of Pinesaw. In, in Africa, we call it debtor. And they're drinking it. They're drinking it. And um, there's another gentleman in Ghana that calls himself Angel. Uh, he's, he's, he began, Pastor, he began from Bishop, which Bishop is a misnomer in our modern day Christianity because they don't understand what Bishop means. Bishop is the same as Pastor. Is the same as elder. And in a particular local church, you're supposed to have multiple bishops. You know, so Paul will say in Philippians 1 1 that he's greeting them and the bishops that are in the church. Um, Acts 14 23, and when he had ordained them elders with an S, um, we call that plurality of elders. So each church is supposed to have multiple leaders. You know, but this idea of a bishop being hired and a pastor is, is out of Catholicism. You know, something that began way back in, in the second century during the church fathers. You know, an idea that was actually introduced by Ignatius um, and, you know, Irenaeus that pushed the idea that if you're a pastor, well, you must have a bishop that is over the group of leaders because there must be one person who is higher. See, that's where the apostasy began. That's where the church began to fall off. Uh, not to bore you with church history, but once they elevated one position of a bishop above the elders, it was not long before you had multiple bishops who were elevated above elders, so you needed to have somebody above the bishop. So you came to what? Archbishop. And then as the church grew, Many more archbishops came on the scene. So there has to be somebody above the archbishop. Then we came to cardinals. Okay? And then the church began to expand and expand and expand. Then you needed to have somebody among the cardinals who is higher than all the cardinals. Then they came to metropolitans, of which they had five metropolitan areas. Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, Constantinople, and Rome. So among these Ogboros, <laughs> among these people, one of them needed to be the above all. So in 588 AD, the Bishop of Constantinople or the Metropolitan of Constantinople, a man by the name of John the Faster, claimed to be the overall boss. But he was opposed by the then Bishop of Rome a man by the name of Gregory the Great. So Gregory the Great opposed him, and he had the backing of Rome, so he did not come on. In fact, when he opposed him, he said, this is the work of the Antichrist. Way back, 6th century. But guess what? In 606 AD, the Metropolitan of Rome, or the Bishop of Rome, Boniface III claimed to be the overall bishop, and he was backed by Rome and he became the first pope in 606 AD. Then in 1780, the pope became infallible. 
he was no longer a man. So you see the retrogression. And that's what has led to where we are today. Because we chose to leave the essentials. So, once he became powerful, all kinds of things happened. And you know, in 1517, you know what happened. Martin Luther had to do something about it when he realized the corruptions in the church. Okay? Um, he nailed his thesis to the Castlegate Church door, and he challenged the Roman Catholic Church to a debate. He said, the things that are going on here is nothing but the work of Satan. What actually pushed him to write his thesis was because one member of his church was so drunk in Wittenberg, the guy was in the gutter, so he met him, and he said, this is unbecoming of a Christian. I'll see you in confession. No Catholics believe in confession. The guy looked at him and he said, no, I don't have to come for confession because I have bought myself an indulgence already. Indulgence, I don't know why I'm going this way. This is not what I plan to say. <laughs> I'm giving you church history from first century all the way to 16th century. So, you know, an indulgence, here's what's happening. Catholics, Catholicism believe that when you die and you are not good enough for heaven, but you are too good for hell, you are in between. A play that they call purgatory. So when you are locked up in purgatory, if you have a relative that is alive, they can do some sacrament, sacraments or do some things on your behalf for you to migrate from sacrament to heaven. And then it degenerated to mean that you can actually buy indulgences on your own. If you are going to sin, you buy an indulgence ahead of time. So that's what the man bought. So when his, his bishop said, I will see you in conversion, he said, no, I don't have to come. I bought myself an indulgence from a man called Johann Tessel or John Tessel. John Tessel was known to be the father of indulgences. He sold them like Leroy Thompson would, would, would work money today. Because they were building St. Peter's Basilica and they needed money. So they cut off quotas. And Johann Tessel was selling indulgences. So people were just buying. You know? But that's, that's where we find ourselves now. As a consequence of this degeneration over a period of time. And so I began to go back and to look at where are we? What led us to where we are? And I realized one thing. That what I believe is the most essential, indispensable ingredient in the first century church is missing. It's missing. And that is apostolic doctrine. Or the word of God. Did you know that when Jesus was on the earth with his disciples, prior to him dying, they never quoted one scripture? None. I'm talking about the disciples. See if you can find it and let me know. Never. In fact, they did not even believe that he is to resurrect. 
He told them through allegories. He told them through parables and what have you. I'll throw down this house, this, this building in three days. I'll build it up. It meant, it meant nothing to them. To the point where when he actually resurrected and the woman saw him, saw that he had resurrected and went to the disciples, the Bible said they did not believe them. It was so bad, they thought that that was the end of the experiment. A couple of them had gone back to their former business, which was fishing. So bad. And this continued until in Luke chapter 24. I have a bunch of scriptures. I don't think we can get to all of them. About, I have about 20 that we'll look at. But wherever we stop, we stop. In Luke 24... A couple of them were on their way to Emmaus, about seven miles south of Jerusalem. And as they were walking, Jesus at this time had resurrected. You know when he resurrected, he was actually on the earth for 40 days. He was with them for 40 days. And so if anybody tells you that they denied the resurrection, that who saw Jesus and all of that, they must not be reading their Bible. Because Corinthians 15 even tells us that he was seen by over 500 believers at the same time. So among the people who saw him on another occasion were these believers that were on their way to Emmaus, and Jesus joined himself to them. Let's start by reading Luke chapter Luke 24, we'll, be, we'll hang around Luke and the book of Acts. Amen? You know, the book of Luke and Acts were written by the same person. Luke. In fact, it's a two-volume piece. Luke, Acts. Luke and the book of Acts. Two-volume piece. The first piece, uh, volume, is the book of Luke, and then which was uh, named after the author himself, Dr. Luke. And the second piece, volume piece, was the book of Acts. So you read Acts chapter 1 from verse 1. It says, the former treaties have I made to you, O Theophilus, making reference to the previous letter, which is the book of Luke. So now we're in the book of Luke chapter 24. Come with me to verse number 13. It said, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said unto them, What kind of conversation is this that you are having with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one whose name of Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? See, this is the most ironic scripture in all of the Bible. So, Are you the only one who is a stranger in Jerusalem? No, you are the one who is a stranger. And he said unto them, um, then one of them, 18, one of them, 18 again, then one of one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the, 
their only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? 19. And he said unto them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 24. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Verse 25 to 27 is where I'm going next. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So these two on the road to Emmaus, uh, who were part of the believers then, were walking with Jesus, and they did not know it was him. And they were asking him if he was the only stranger in Jerusalem, because Jesus said, what are you talking about? And so they are talking about the person who was talking to them. <laughs> okay? So when, after a while, the Bible said Jesus uh, rebuked them, and then Beginning, take notice now, we're beginning to launch into our conversation tonight. The essentials or essentiality of scripture in Christianity or in the church. And beginning from Moses and all the prophets, he told them or he opened their eyes onto the scriptures and taught them the things concerning himself. That means he launched a crash course in the entire Old Testament, beginning from Moses, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and the prophets, beginning from Joshua, after the Pentateuch, Joshua all the way to Malachi, and Jesus taught them that all these things that are written in the book of Moses, all the letters of Moses, or the documents by Moses, and all the prophets, major and minor, they all speak concerning me. Indeed, the whole of the Old Testament, not just the Old Testament, the whole of Scripture is a commentary on the first messianic uh, prophecy, which is Genesis 3.15. That's the first messianic prophecy. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. It shall cross your head. You will bruise his Healed. So that is a messianic prophecy that happened way back in Genesis chapter 3. The rest of scripture from Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 all the way to Revelation 22 is a commentary on Genesis 3.15. I put enmity between thee and the woman, between her seed and thy seed. Men produce seed, not women don't. But in this case, the prophecy is saying that a woman shall have a seed. You know why? Because Jesus was conceived of a woman without a contribution of a man. Mm -hmm. 
So if you look at Adam and Eve, to whom Eve especially, to whom that prophecy was made, the first messianic prophecy, they had two sons, right? Who are the sons? Cain and Cain slew who? Abel. They conceived again and had another son. They called him what? Seth. What did uh, Eve say when she had said? She praised God, she said, for God has given me another seed. So I can launch from Genesis and take you all the way and show you how that the seed who is Jesus to come came from the lineage of Seth all the way down through Noah, all the way through Abraham, and finally you arrive at David. You understand what I'm saying? So he is the seed of the woman. So what Jesus did was to launch through the Old Testament, beginning from Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, all of them, way to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi. He said, everything that you read is concerning me. He probably taught them that day in that crash course what Isaiah meant when he said, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be wonderful, mighty God, everlasting Father. Of the extent of his rule and government, there shall be no end. They understood for the first time. Just the two of them. It is so critical they understood what scriptures meant and that they talked about Jesus. It was so critical that later on that day, in the same Luke chapter 24 from verse 36 down, when you go and read because of time, we, we let me give you the, it's from 36 to 49. He met the rest of the disciples and also taught them the scriptures. The same thing he had taught the two. So for the first time, Peter and the rest of them heard the gospel from the Old Testament. You understand it? Later on that night, he began with the two. Beginning from Moses and the prophets, he talked about how the scriptures were talking about him. And then later on that night, he met the rest of the gang, Peter and the rest of them, who were not on their way to a mouse. And he explained the scriptures to them as well. In fact, that's why in John chapter 4, John chapter 5, Jesus, in talking to the Pharisees, said, you read the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but they are they which testify of me. What scriptures was he talking about? At that time, there was no New Testament. There was only the Old Testament. That's the only scripture they had. Genesis to Malachi. He said, you read from Genesis to Malachi, you think in them you have life, but they are they that testify of me. Critical that you understand that the entire Bible is a commentary about the life of Jesus. All right? Okay, so, now, this took place before Jesus ascended. He needed to make sure that the foundation is laid and it is solid, that they understand the scriptures. Because he knew that very soon they are going to be thrown out there and the teachers and the rulers of the law will begin to bamboozle them. They need to have a grasp on the scriptures. So he taught them that and then he ascended. When he was ascending, he said, wait in Jerusalem 
until you be endued with power. Why? Because something that he mentioned in Matthew chapter 16 is about to unfold. In Matthew chapter 16, when he took his disciples to uh, Paneas, a place where he for the first time mentioned the word church. He prefaced it by saying, who do men say that I am? Remember that scripture from verse 13. Whenever we talk about Matthew 16, straight away we go to, and I will build my church. That is true. He is building his church. But the building of the church is, is, is preceded by an understanding of who Christ is. If you don't get your Christology right, Christology is the study of the life and work of Christ. If you don't get your Christology right, your ecclesiology will be wrong. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Ecclesia. It's the word from which we get church. E-K-K-E-C-L-E-E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. The first E-K, it can be celebrated into the first E-K, ek, means out from. Klesia, K-L-E-S-I-A, means called out. So if you combine the two, it means called out from, or called from. Okay? You cannot be called in if you are not called out. There cannot be a call in. You can't be called in if you are not called out. So that there is a summons that is issued. And when you respond to the summons, then you become called out. God issues the summons. How does he do it? Through the gospel. Okay, so when you accept Christ, you accept the summons and you come to him, then you become called out and you become a part of the assembly. Okay? So he said, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power when the Holy Spirit comes. And so they were there, the 120. Um, at this time, if we, according to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, there were 500 also to whom he showed himself alive who were believers. If you add it, it will be 620, but it was only the 120 that were in the upper room. And the Bible said while they were there, on the day of Pentecost, something happened. Uh, we tend to think that Pentecost is just a new phenomenon that happened that time. It's been going on. It's part of the feast they've been celebrating for a long time. It's just like um, the Feast of Tabernacles. And during the feast, everybody needs to make a trip to Jerusalem to go and celebrate the feast. Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Pent. Five. Or 50th part of something. So Pentecost is 50 days from the first festival, which is Passover. 50 days from Passover is Pentecost. Okay? So on this particular day, everybody who is a Jew that resided both in Jerusalem and Jews that lived in the diaspora are supposed to make their trip and come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. So it was already the time for Pentecost. So everybody who were Jerusalem Jews were already there, and those Jews from the diaspora, uh, particularly those from the Greek territories, because at this time, Greece was the main superpower of the world, and they had conquered territories. So we call them Hellenists. Anybody who is educated and refined in Greek culture is called a Hellenist. 
So the Jews who are from Hellenistic cultures, we call them Hellenistic Jews. So they make their migration and come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Are you following what I'm saying? So they were there having their own good time, and God seized on the opportunity. So when the day of Pentecost had fully come, when everybody was celebrating Pentecost, then the Bible said as the 220 were in the upper room, the Holy Spirit came. And there came what? The sound, a mighty sound. As what? A mighty what? There was no wind on Pentecost that day in the upper room. It was a sound. It's just giving you the nature of the sound. The sound was like... We call it anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphism. That is, you're using characteristics that relates to human, something that you can relate to, to describe a phenomenon. Just like when Jesus was being baptized and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a... It does not mean a dove physically descended on Christ. No. Like. It's an anthropomorphic phenomenon or description. So it's all right to have a white dove... (laughs) You know, in your living room or your, it's, it's okay. I love doves. But it doesn't mean on that, day, on that day when Jesus was being baptized, a dove, a white dove came there. No. And then the other phenomenon was, you see, they draw their disciples and they put fire on their head. No, there was no fire that came on their head. It's just an anthropomorphic description of the phenomenon that took place. Okay? So anyway, let's go on. So it came. And then they began to speak in tongues. You know the story already. So they say, ah, are these people not Galileans? Or are these people not Jerusalem Jews? Mind you, everybody there were Jews. But remember what I told you. There were some that came from Hellenistic cultures. So though they were Jews and they practiced Judaism, they don't live in Jerusalem. They had come from other territories. So where they were coming from, the languages that they speak there, They understand those languages. They do know that language. They speak it. So when they heard that these 120 who are Jerusalem Jews never traveled outside Jerusalem before, all of a sudden, they're speaking the language of the places where they had come from. Are these not Galileans or Jerusalem Jews? How come we hear them in the tongue or the language or the places we are coming from? They must be drunk or something. Then Peter launched out for the second time he will quote the scripture and he said these are not drunk as you suppose I said the second time because you know the first time the first time was in Luke Acts chapter 1 when they had gathered in the upper room the Bible says that Peter quoted he didn't say he quoted but he said, he said the scripture and I can reference you what he said concerning uh, Judas who had betrayed Christ and had died. So now they were 11. There's a scripture in Psalm 109, verse 8, that says that, and the place of his bishopric let another man take. So Peter went there. It's amazing. Jesus in Luke 24 opened their eyes to understand the scriptures that this is what the Bible is all about. He is ascended. Now they are quoting scripture very copiously. So that for the first time, Peter quotes the scripture. And he said, it is written, 
that in the place of his bishopric, let another man take. So we must have another person to replace him and take the office of Judas. So they chose two men, Matthias and another uh, gentleman, and then they had prayed and cast lots, it fell on Matthias. So the 12 minus Judas plus Matthias, and later on plus Paul became the apostles that we know, the original apostles from whom we have the word of God. That's why Ephesians 2.20 will tell you that the church is built upon the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. What does it mean? It is based on the revelation that is given to the apostles and the prophets. So if anybody comes today and tells you he's a modern day uh, apostle and the church is built on him, tell him, I said he's a liar. Amen. So Peter, wow, I, I, I can't. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, so in this particular dispensation right now, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because that is what God is speaking to us. Yes. He has been speaking to us in from the very beginning. Yes. But we are just beginning to hear it. Yes. So, now this is being translated in those, uh, you know, uh, churches that we're talking about mm-hmm. before when you started, all this mm-hmm. triatrics, you know, and manipulation and all that stuff. The circus. A completely different doctrine from what Jesus is about. Mm-hmm. That these doctrines originated from Paul mm-hmm. and has nothing to do with Jesus. Mm-hmm. So everything from the book of Acts all the way to uh, uh, Revelation, you know, mm-hmm. these guys, mm-hmm. you know, all these pastors are beginning to transform it just to ensure the control they have over the church that they preside over. Mm-hmm. So they are manipulating it. Now, how, how do you address that as, you know, as a believer? It's very, it's very simple. And we, we shall get to there. I, I doubt that we'll have the time to get to there. Maybe another time. But let me say it to you this way. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, from verse 15 down. It says, from thy youth, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, how that it is able to make the wise unto salvation by faith, which is in Christ Jesus, 15, 16. For all scripture is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all scripture, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness, that a man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So why are people gravitating towards this? Okay, so it is Paul said, I, I give unto you that which I have received from him. So Paul is not the originator of anything. He's a conduit by which the revelation came. But the revelation was given by God. That's why I said all scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And anybody who will be a mouthpiece of God or an agency through whom the word of God must come, in order for God to validate that they are speaking for him, He blessed them with spiritual, special, miracle-working powers. That's why Paul can be preaching and a man falls down from the uh, window. Eutychus is his name. He falls down dead. Paul goes there, wakes him up, and continues to preach. 
People are sick. Peter is walking. Peter has never been to school before. It is not by might or by power. His shadow falls on them and they are walking. There's a reason for that. Because that is out of the ordinary. I know there are magicians who do things by satanic anointing, but there are some things they can't do. They have serious limitations. What God used the apostles to do, they can't do it. Classical example is Acts chapter 8. Philip is there. Revival breaks out. He sends to Jerusalem. Peter came by to help. And as Peter came and was laying hands on the people, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, which is the second time in Scripture we read in the book of Acts that they had received the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Apart from the original 12, I mean the original 120, the first place was in Acts chapter 10 in the house of Cornelius because that is the first Gentile upon whom the Holy Spirit came. So God needed to do something to validate that the Gentiles are being drafted into the church. So he began to speak in tongues just the same way it had happened to them. The second time was in Samaria. Very important because Samaria is like a bridge between the Jews and Gentiles. They are crossbreed. They also spoke in tongues. Then the third phenomenon, apart from which it didn't happen again, was in Acts 19. When the disciples of John, they said, what have you heard about? They said, we know the baptism of John. Those are Old Testament believers. So you're talking about the, if you will, Gentiles, people under the law, Old Testament believers, and those that are in between, they all qualify to be a part of the church. That is the sign that Jesus is, maybe I digress my answer, but hopefully you got what I'm saying. All right. Um, so in Acts 1, verse 15 to 26, um, is where Peter quoted the scriptures for the first time. Acts 1, 15, 26, you can read it on your own. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17 to 35, Peter begins his sermon. He begins his sermon by quoting Joel. We said, in the last days, I poured my spirit upon all flesh. That's in verse 17. And he ends his sermon by quoting David in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand side until I've made my, your, my, uh, your enemies my footstool. That's verse 35. Okay? So in Acts 2, 17, he quotes Joel, concludes his sermon by quoting David in Acts chapter 2, verse 35. So the crash course that Jesus gave them, opening their eyes and teaching them what the scriptures meant as far as he was concerned, has taken hold. And that is the most important, essential, indispensable ingredient in the church. The word of God. So he preaches in Acts 2, 17 to 35. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the Bible said 3,000 souls were saved that day. When they heard the preaching of Peter, how that he come through all of the Old Testament, weave his way through, copiously quoting from left, right, center, and explaining to them 
that these things are talking about the Messiah whom you guys persecuted and killed and rose up again. The Bible said they were pricked to their hearts and then they began to say, men and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? Because all of a sudden, it's getting a hold of them. These are Jews that have been reading the Old Testament for a long time. They never understood it until Peter explained it that day, that this is what it meant. It pricked to their heart. He said, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, all of you, for the remission of your sins. They got baptized. 3,000 were added in verse 41. In verse 42, immediately the Bible said, and those that were added continued steadfastly in the apostolic doctrine. No shenanigans. No deliverance. No 42-day fast. No go and bring me venison. No go and bring me offering. They continue steadfastly in the apostolic word. Doctrine. That's the most essential ingredient in the whole of church. What is apostolic doctrine? Apostolic teaching or the teaching of the apostles. Are you understanding this at all? Is it making sense? So they began in the apostolic doctrine. Now, these 3,000, majority of them are those who are Hellenistic Jews. So you come for a festival called Pentecost. Usually, uh, is their practice. And after the festival, you go back to your place. All of a sudden, God has seized your attention has introduced a new phenomenon or organism, not organization. Church is not an organization. It is an organism. That is why it is called the body of Christ with different members. Body of Christ, temple of God, church, um, kingdom of God is the same thing, just different semantics. When you talk about the kingdom of God, you're talking about the basilea of God. You're talking about the reign of a king. So you become born again. God issues the summon. You are called out. You become a part of his kingdom, an extension of his kingdom. So wherever you are, you are God's kingdom. You are the domain of his dominion. So wherever you go, the kingdom goes. That's the kingdom of God. When you talk about the church, you're talking about ecclesia. You talk about the temple, you're talking about the worshiping entity of God. And when you talk about the body of Christ, you're talking about the different membership. So, all of a sudden, these people have been drafted into that organism that is seen for the first time in the whole world. Nobody has ever heard or seen anything called a church before. It had never happened. There was only one church. And that took place on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. So, now their hearts have been seized. They had witnessed this wonderful phenomenon. They did not go back. To where they came from. They remain in Jerusalem. I said they remain in Jerusalem. To continue what? Steadfastly. In the apostles' doctrine. So here's the thing. These people have come to Jerusalem. They have left the place of their comfort. They've left their businesses. They left their jobs. They left their cattle. Now they have come. They are in Jerusalem. They don't live there. If they were paying for a hotel, they probably made provision for just one week or two weeks. After that, their money is gone. 
but they have become steadfastly studying the apostolic doctrine. They are not going back to their places. That is why people who had something will sell and bring to the apostles so they can distribute it so that these Hellenistic Jews can also be taken care of. That's what happens in Acts chapter 6 when the Bible says that the Hellenistic Jews complained that their widows were not being taken care of. The same way the Jerusalem Jewish widows were being catered for. So when the resources come to the welfare department of the church, there was only one church, and it's in Jerusalem. So these people are not going back. They are part of it. The widows who are of the diasporan extract, their widows were being discriminated against. So they went to the apostles. They launched a complaint. And the apostles said, we cannot leave the word of God to serve tables. Look among yourselves and choose seven men who will administer this thing. But as for us, we'll give ourselves to prayer and to the administration of the word. So they got seven people. First on the list was a man by the name of Stephen. Remarkable man. Remarkable man. I can take 60 minutes just to talk about Stephen. Stephanos is the original in the Greek. It means the victor's crown. This is a man that went toe-to-toe, possibly, with Paul, who was a doctor of the law, debated him, and he defeated Paul. It is possible that Paul heard for the first time that by the works of the law shall no man be justified from Stephen. It is possible that Paul heard for the first time that in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily from the lips of Stephen. Go read Acts chapter 6. Remarkable. The Bible said he went to the synagogue and he argued with them. It doesn't mean they were going on a you know, shouting context. No. Argumentation in this context means that they were debating. This has to do with the Old, the Old Testament. That was the only thing they had. Mind you, Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. The name, Stephanos, is of a Greek extract. Second on the list is a man by the name of Philip. The other five, we didn't hear anything about them. The whole of chapter 6 and chapter 7 belonged to Stephen. Chapter 8 of the book of Acts belonged to Philip. It is amazing. The Bible said they could not stand the wisdom of Stephen. Stephen was a new believer. At this time, by Acts chapter 6, the church was numbering close to 20,000. 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. In chapter 4, chapter 3, they prayed for the man at the beautiful gate. The man sees them on the inside of the temple. He came to them. And the Bible said when the crowd saw that this is the man who has always been sitting down lame, leaping and jumping and praising God, they joined him. So when they saw the man talking to the apostles, Peter and John, they also came there. So Peter and John began to expound to them the word of God. This thing is blowing up, man. That day, 5,000 men were saved in Acts chapter 4. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. In chapter 4, 5,000 men. And you know, biologically, where there is men and there is women, there are children. 
So if it's 5,000 men, and we can biologically safely say that there's always twice as many women, because the Bible was specific in saying 5,000 men were saved. So you're talking in excess of 10,000 that were saved in Acts chapter 4 alone. And the Bible said in Acts 2, 47, and the Lord added to the church daily such as must be added. So between chapters 2 and chapter 6, somewhere in between, Stephen gets saved. But because they continue steadfastly in the apostolic doctrine, he is so well lettered in the word of God that he could stand to debate the doctors of the law. And he won the debate. He went to the synagogue. There are different synagogues in Jerusalem. Historians tell us there are as much as about 500 synagogues. So what happens is the diasporan Jews, if you're from, um, let's say you are from Antioch, and you come to Jerusalem, because those of you who are of this particular extract, and you are from the same neighborhood, you have your own synagogue, and that's where you go and fellowship. Those people who are from, let's say, Lawrenceville, you carve out your synagogue. Those who are from uh, Beaufort, you have your own synagogue. And so the synagogue that Stephen went to is called the synagogue of freed men, Cyrenians, um, Cilicia, um, and Alexandrians, synagogue of the freed men, historically, in 63 BC, Pompey, who was a Roman general, had come to Jerusalem, defeated them, and hauled away massive amounts of prisoners, sold them off in Rome as prisoners. Eventually, some of them got freed, and they made their way back to Jerusalem. So these people who made their way back as former slaves formed a synagogue, and they called it the synagogue of freed men. Cyrenians is the synagogue that belonged to those Jews that were living in Cyrene, or modern-day Libya. Alexandrians are those who are from the capital of Egypt. And then those of Cilicia. Cilicia, the principal town of Cilicia, is Tarsus, which is where Paul came from. So Paul was part of that synagogue. Where, uh, where uh, Stephen debated them and he won. No wonder when they were stoning him, he was right there. Okay? So, an ordinary church member. He only came to the spotlight because there was a need to address the Hellenistic Jews' complaints. Look among you. Give us seven faithful men. He was number one on the list. He was not a cardinal. He was not an archbishop. He was not even an elder. An ordinary church member. But he could debate the lawyers of the law. Why? Because he had continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. All right? So, in conclusion, I want to take us through a sweep of taking us through Acts chapter 1 all the way to chapter 6, uh, to chapter 7. Chapter 8 belonged to Philip, who went to uh, Samaria, you know already. So as I was saying, Peter came there. He was praying for them. Signs and wonders were happening. People were praying in tongues. Then Simon, who was a magician, came and said, I'm offering you money. 
so that you give me the ability to be able to also lay hands so people can also receive the Holy Spirit. And what did Peter say? Your money perish with you. In fact, the, the, the message translation says, to hell with your money. So there is something in ecclesiology that is called simony. S-I-M-O-N-Y. Simony. It came from the original Simon. It is from that man. Simony in biblical ecclesiology means to offer ecclesiastical things at a cost or at an expense. You are doing a work for God and you are charging for it. It's called simony. That's where it came from. Acts chapter 8. In the midst of the revival in Samaria, the Holy Spirit comes to him. And he says, move towards the desert. He encounters the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading the book of Acts. He said, he joined himself to him and he said, do you understand what you are reading? He said, how can I understand? Nobody is teaching me. And the Bible said, beginning from the same scripture, he taught him about Jesus Christ. Beginning from what scripture? He was reading the book of Isaiah. He taught him the gospel from the book of Isaiah, beginning from the same scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And from a child that has known the holy scriptures. Right? So you read the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, you keep hearing this word, sound doctrine, sound doctrine, sound doctrine. What am I going with all of this? I'm going, what I'm going is that because there is no knowledge about the doctrines of the church, or apostolic doctrine, there is therefore no doctrinal clarity. And if you don't have doctrinal clarity, you cannot have um, discernment. You can't have spiritual discernment. You can't have spiritual discernment if you don't know the word. That's why in Acts 17, in the earlier chapters, in the earlier uh, part of the chapter, uh, Paul was in Thessalonica. He was preaching in the synagogues and they rose up against him. Under the cover of night, they moved him and they took him all the way to Berea. And the Bible said he made a commentary about the Berean Christians. He said, and they are more noble than their brethren in Thessalonica. That's Acts 17, 11. For they studied the word day and night to make sure that what was taught them is actually in the Bible. Those of you here are more noble than their brethren in Thessalonica. For they study the scripture diligently to make sure that what they are being taught is actually in the Bible. Amen? Uh, I didn't mean to take you through Acts chapter 5. Um, but in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, they filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, it said, teach no other doctrine. Let them teach no other doctrine. It means that what we know, you know to be truth is what must be taught. 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, verse 1 to 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 7 uh, gives what we call the qualifications for the office of a bishop. You may have read it before. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 7. It said that a bishop must be the husband of one wife, one who rules his house, and things like that. You understand? One that is not given to liquor and all those things. You've read it before. 
Okay, so one that is given to one wife, it doesn't mean you can have one wife and then ten girlfriends. No. It means one woman, man. Okay? But if you read the qualifications from verse 1 to verse 7, everything that is listed there as being qualifications for a bishop should also be true of you as a believer. With the exception of one thing, which is the only skill that is mentioned. Only skill. The rest has to do with morals and character. Only one skill. And the morals and character goes for everybody. The only one skill is in verse 2. 1 Timothy 3, 2. He said he must be apt to teach him. The original is didacticus. That is the Greek. Didacticus. It means the ability, skillful in teaching. You must know the word to be able to teach. And for you to be able to teach or be a good teacher, you must be a good student. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Study to show yourself approved. A workman that needs not be ashamed. But in 2.15, he said, you must be rightly, you must divide the word rightly. The original is autotemeo. It's a civil engineering term. It means that you are carving a road, you must carve it in a straight fashion manner so that whoever travels on that road can get to their destination without wavering. You must be able to dissect the word. 1 Peter 3.15 Sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be ready to give an answer to any man who asks you the reason for the hope that lies within you. Any questions? Yes, sir. Follow their own ways and misled people. And even it is happening today, we see it in churches. And then you also talk about uh, Stephen who debated those who had doctors in uh, theology or law and he was able to win over them. What would you say differentiates him from others who had the knowledge of theology, to say, but he was able to debate them and he won. What would you say? And how does it apply to us even today as believers? Okay. Good question. Um, I, I think that the, the Bible highlighted Stephen, uh, but the others could well have done the same. And the reason I say that is simple. If you extrapolate from Acts 2, 47, where it says they continue, no, verse 42, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's all they did. They learned the scriptures. They were devoted to it. They devoured it. And so they were prepared. On the day, whenever their number is called, they are ready to go. That is from where Peter, the last scripture I quoted before I wanted to take leave of you, First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 15, sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that lies within you. Every believer, to an extent, must be an apologist. 
That is not to say I'm sorry. That is to defend what you believe. To be an apologist, you must know what you believe, why you believe what you believe, and have the ability to communicate what you believe in a winsome way. So you must devote yourself to these things. You know, um, it's taken me two years to study on the church and the deity of Christ. And by God's grace, I don't have to look in the Bible to debate anybody about the church and the deity of Christ. You can't tell me Jesus is not God. I don't have to open my Bible to prove to you that Jesus is God. Two years, I devoted to nothing else but that. So if you study to show yourself approved, you'll be a workman that needs not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. And in fairness, morning day there are apologists. There's a man by the name of Ravi Zacharias. Yes, rzim.org. He's an apologist, you know, and all of us must be apologists in our own right. It is so sad, you know, we can't get to some of these things, but when, when, I, when I teach on ecclesiology and the church, and we come to, there's a portion I teach that I call it ministers of the church. We, people who are pastors now don't know what it means to be pastors. I'm not generalizing anything, but I'm talking about those that give people uh, uh, debtor to drink and all of those things. They, they don't know what it is they are doing because they cannot. All they give the people on Sunday is psychology. All they give them is philosophy, the opinions of men. There is no exposition. They don't exposit the scriptures. When we say exposition, it doesn't mean to expose the scriptures. It means to exposit. The verb is exposit. That means to explain. Explain it. They can't. All they are interested in is one scripture that can get them money. Circus. Thank you. Um, but now, in John, Jesus said this, John 16, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you unto all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. I mean, we, we, in uh, the beginning of Acts, we were told that Philip and uh, Stephen were filled with the Holy Spirit, and even on the, when Jesus asked uh, Peter about uh, I mean, who people said he was or he is, and, he say, and Jesus said, is the Holy Spirit that revealed it the to flesh you. Of God has not so, by my father. By my it? father. So the, I think also the church leaders earlier, or even today, we miss it when we don't allow the Holy Spirit or not filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was able to speak boldly and people came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we as Christians who are ambassadors we must be filled with the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to lead us because he's to guide us. Amen. That is true. But the Holy Spirit must have something to work with. And that's when because if you don't study it, when the Holy Spirit comes, there is no explanation of what you're reading. You know, it's just like Philip, an Ethiopian, you know, who was reading 
He said, do you understand what you are reading? But because he knew the letter, it was easy for him to transition into the practicals. So Philip, the Bible said, beginning from the same scripture that he was reading, he preached the gospel to him. And he became saved. Amen. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much. We bless you for our time together and thank you for what you have um, accomplished through us. Uh, we're humbled. We ask, Lord, that your word will bear fruit in our lives, that we'll be able to give an answer to every man that asks us the reason for the hope that lieth within us. We want to thank you that we'll defend the faith that is once for all delivered unto the saints. We bless you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.